Hey, man. Well, welcome to Faith Church. I'm glad you're here. If we haven't met, my name's Matthew, just one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you here in the room or those watching online, whether you're at home because maybe you, uh, you're not feeling well or you're traveling. I just want you to know that no matter where you're at, we are all Faith Church together. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Hope you ate more than you should have, laughed more than you thought you would, and enjoyed some time with people nearby. I had a great, my family and I had a wonderful Thanksgiving, uh, despite the unholy, unwelcome reminder that I am no longer young or in shape. Went out to play some football Thursday morning and popped and pulled my hamstring. I've been limping and icing uh, and so uh, for several days now, so uh, y'all pray for your pastor to not only get better, but to find some wisdom. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's worse. So if all of a sudden I just wince in pain, it's not the spirit, it's something else, I promise. Hey, join me in Matthew chapter 19. We're continuing this collection called the King Jesus Gospel. Over the next four weeks following this one, we'll... We're going to begin, uh, our, our messages are going to have a, a poignant uh, element that points us towards the Christmas story, an element of the Christmas story and the Christmas spirit, even though we will be continuing in uh, this gospel and continuing in our journey, we're, we're going to find some themes that relate and help us in this season. Uh, because I don't know if you realize this, but the gospel, uh, the King Jesus gospel is about Jesus. And uh, I don't know if you are aware of this or not. Hallmark hasn't quite figured it out yet, but uh, Christmas is about Jesus too. That was a good place to say amen. I'm a little worried, actually, that uh, you've listened to Hallmark more than the Holy Spirit maybe, but uh, this is who we are. This is who we worship. This is who we come and adore and sing to. And so it's all about him, and and we're going to be exploring that, um, some specific themes over the next few weeks. Uh, Matthew 19, are you there? If you want to follow along, you can go to our central hub or scan a QR code on the screen. It'll get you there. Matthew 19, this is what it says, starting in verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And then he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. How appropriate of a scripture for us to read today on child dedication. And if you thought I corresponded and intentionally landed on this scripture for today, you give me way too much credit. This was all the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we moved along. Friends, the King Jesus gospel is a multi-generational story. It's not just about one generation. It's about ongoing generations. It's not about just one generation when Jesus showed up and proclaimed the good news. No, no, no. God has always been known as a multi-generational God. See, the story of redemption that was unfolding from the beginning, God revealed himself throughout time in history as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations is to say that it's an ongoing story that has unfolded and through the family line, Jesus arrives on the scene. It's a multi-generational story. God's kingdom cares about your children and grandchildren because God's kingdom is generational too. Long after you and I breathe our last breath, the kingdom of God will still be continuing. Should the Lord not return in our lifetime, the kingdom of God will still be growing and expanding. So you're not living your life just for you right now. You are living your life for the generations to come after you right now. Your life and your decisions don't just impact you. They impact the generations of those who carry your same name and DNA. This is why child dedication is a special moment. Because we're not just saying, here God, you fix these kids. 
We're saying, here God, here we are as pictures and conduits of your love to shape not just one generation, but a generation after that and a generation after that to be about the kingdom of God. That God's kingdom is generational. God cares about your children and your grandchildren. I care about your children and your grandchildren. This church cares about your children and your grandchildren. We want them to have a full grasp of who Jesus is. To understand and what it means to fall in love with him and follow him and give them their full allegiance. We, we want to do those same things too. Why? Because the kingdom of God and the family of God, it is generational. You've heard me say it, that the family of God is a picture that points towards something special and meaningful. That the the family of God, the church itself, is meant to be picturesque of a covenant commitment of family. This idea that we are fathers and mothers who raise sons and daughters to become mothers and fathers who raise sons and daughters to become mothers and fathers. That's why we talk about discipleship. Because discipleship happens in the context of a family. Discipleship at its core is about mothers and fathers bringing their children to Jesus. It's it's interesting, this this passage. There are a few things that kind of caught my attention, even though there's only three verses in our text today. Uh, There are a few things that caught my eye, like why in the world were the disciples scolding and forbidding children to come to Jesus? Like what, what was up with that? Were, were the disciples just trying to like protect Jesus' schedule? That's possible. Is it that the disciples themselves were barely at, towards the end of their teen years and they just didn't like kids because they had brothers and sisters at home and like, no, 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 I'm following Jesus. You don't get to follow Jesus. Jesus this is my Jesus. You go find your own, right? Like sibling rivalry. Is that kind of what their attitude was? I don't, I don't know. Was it because some of them were so sophisticated they were like curmudgeons and just were grumpy old people trapped in young people's body? I I don't know. It's possible. I I think actually, though, part of the the issue wasn't so much about a biblical context near as much, much as it was a cultural mindset that was prevalent in that time. A mindset that disregarded children and women and those who worked for a living as non-important. It was the place of the aristocrat, the promised, the prominent ones. It was a place for men. It was a man's world. And women and children had very little part to play in that reality. So they were just bothering him. You can't bother the Messiah. But you know what I love is that Jesus upends all of those cultural stereotypes, all of those cultural mindsets, and he does something counterintuitive to the world around him, and he was subvertive in the way in which he brought salvation and wholeness and reconciliation and the way he tells us to do family moving forward. It was different. It was countercultural. It upset their cultural sensitivities of what they thought was the right way. And Jesus is still doing that today. Upending what we thought is right. Upending what we thought was the prominent and important. Upending those that we thought were, were the most important in the ways in which we do that. Where, where he came lowly as a servant. Where he came humbly as a child in a stable. As opposed to a conquering king with power and might and financial wealth. That would demand people pay attention to him because of his social status. No, he brought a message that was totally different. I love the fact that uh, the other thing that caught my eye was that Jesus places this priority and an invitation to children to engage with him directly. I believe very firmly that children don't get a junior version of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They get the same Holy Spirit that sets you free, sets them free. They can hear God speak to them just like you can hear God speak to you. They can read scripture and understand scripture just like you can read scripture and understand scripture. They're not a junior varsity level follower of Jesus. They are followers of Jesus too. And Jesus welcomes them and wants to have direct interaction with them. This was revolutionary on so many ways. One commentary says it like this, to say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these was not to declare automatic salvation for all children. 
but rather to set up their lowly status as a model for discipleship and establish a larger kingdom value that we all participate in. I love that Jesus laid his hands on the children and blessed them. You know, in our world, we have uh, this phrase, I'm going to lay hands on you, and it's not always a good phrase. (laughs) Come here, kid. I'm going to lay some hands on you real fast if you don't straighten up, right? Like it's a different emphasis. But there is something that the people of God understand that there is something powerful, something personal, something transformative, something that imparts something of in me into you when I lay my hands on you. In fact, the Bible commands the church to lay hands on one another in this way. To bless them, to speak healing over them, to to speak life over them. That the church gets to be a part of a redemptive storytelling where abuse would typically happen at the hands of the powerful. The church comes along and says, no, 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 we are humble and we're going to lay hands on you and bring affirmation, bring love, bring restoration, and bring a sense of affection to you in a way that is holy and right and points you back towards God who created you. Jesus blessed the children. I don't think God is done blessing generations and children yet. God is not done blessing families. I think one of the ways God blesses a child today is through a healthy family. God blesses children still today through a healthy family. I think a healthy family has healthy adults who are full of God's life. It's, it's healthy adults, healthy parents who recognize Jesus is important and they bring their kids to Jesus. Now, I don't want you to hear me say they bring their kids to church. Although that's good and you should do that. We put a lot of emphasis into faith kids around here. We think it's really important that they are in environments where they can learn about Jesus on their age level. We think it's really, really important. But parents brought their kids to Jesus. Parents, your number one job is to disciple your children in the ways of Jesus, helping them cultivate a personal relationship with him. I'll take that as an amen. Right here, we, this is what he's doing. He's saying, Hell, I love that the parents brought them to Jesus. They brought, they brought their children in a way that helped them see Jesus, interact with Jesus, know Jesus, be transformed by Jesus. They brought their children to Jesus. God blesses a child through a healthy family. I think a healthy family also has healthy marriages. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this today as kind of a launch point and reflection back onto what we began talking about last week as it relates to the the, the Christian sexual ethic that Jesus affirmed and taught and scripture reveals to us. And a healthy marriage is a part of that reality, a healthy marriage. Last week we saw that, that Jesus affirmed earlier in this text that God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage was and still is a covenant of service, not convenience. If you would say it's a covenant of love, pastor, I would agree, provided that you define love not as about what it does for you, but rather as an act that you do for someone else. Biblical definition of love, let me kind of riff on this for a minute as Jesus would articulate it is simply this. Love is a choice to sacrifice yourself for the sake of someone else rather than sacrificing them for your own selfishness. If you want to define love that way, then yes, it is absolutely a covenant of love. But it is a covenant of service, not of convenience. One author kind of summarizes it like this. Most people today view marriage as just a contract between two consenting people who commit to loving each other until they fall out of love with each other, in which case they can break the contract and go about their own ways. 
When consent is the only rule, two adults can pretty much use marriage any way that they see fit. Christianity presents a much more complex and multi-layered view of marriage, though. Much like Christianity's sexual ethic, our view of marriage is countercultural and distinct. At least, it should be. For Christianity, marriage is a lifelong covenant between two sexually different but equal persons. There is a subjective reality to their bond. They love each other. They find each other attractive physically, emotionally, spiritually, and agree to pursuing life together. But there's also an objective reality to marriage that's represented. It's the stuff that God designed marriage to be. Stan Grintz, in his book, Sexual Ethics, sums up this objective reality under four main purposes of marriage. This is what the Bible teaches and affirms again and again. Let me give you these four things. Marriage as the unitive context for sexual expression. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two, marriage as directed toward procreation and child rearing. Three, marriage as the focus of companionship. And number four, marriage as a spiritual metaphor. We've talked already in this collection about how marriage and the church are both a picture that point to something more important. Can I just encourage us for a minute? We cannot confuse the priority of the picture for the point. The picture is not the point. The picture is to point to something greater and more important. And when we think that the end-all be-all is marriage, and marriage is the epitome of the Christian life, then we have missed the point, and we have started to idolize the picture instead of recognizing that the picture is pointing to something more important, which is why we don't understand singleness. We think singleness is some secondary understanding of following Jesus, and it's not. Singleness has in and of itself a picture that it points to something greater. Singleness points towards communion with God that leads to flourishing in him as a soul sufficiency source. Single people point to something significant about the life and the world to come. Why is that? Because as we'll discover in a few weeks when we get to this text, Jesus himself said, in the life of the world to come, there will be no marriage. You will not be given in marriage, nor be married. Yeah, but it's so much fun, Pastor. I know. What does Jesus mean by that? I'm not 100% sure. It's a little bit of a mystery. I haven't quite figured it out, but when I die and go to heaven, I'll let you know. But if I'm being honest, I'm not a fan. To be honest, it's a mystery that requires me to trust in his sovereignty. Because our lives are meant to point to something more important. Our marriages are meant to point to something more important. And if we're really honest, if I'm really honest, I think it's because we idolize sex and sexuality way too much that we can't imagine how eternity and all of its wonder and beauty and glory would be absent of such a marvelous thing. But that speaks to our perhaps idolatry more than it does our consecration surrender. We can't worship the gift more than we worship the giver of the gift. Which is why the center of your universe, mom and dad, is not your children. Because they're just a gift. They're not the point of your life. They are a gift that you point with your life towards the person of Jesus. I know that upsets all of our cultural sensibilities. Because if at the end of the day, most of us want our children to say, my parents are my hero. That's just not biblical. 
Oh, I, I want my kids to say, I want my kids to learn that. I want my kids to see that. But the reality is all of these things in a healthy life and a healthy marriage and a healthy family all point to something else. And these four things as it relates to a healthy marriage, these ideas of unitive context for sexual expression, marriage as directed toward procreation and child rearing, marriage as a focus of companionship, and marriage as a spiritual metaphor are all summarized and representative in a lengthy passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. I'm already in so deep. You guys are all sitting there looking at me like, I'm not sure if I like this. Where is he going with this? You just told me the children aren't supposed to be the center of my world and my universe and my whole life shouldn't revolve around my children. Yes, yes, I did. Uh, But I'm only repeating what Jesus has taught us and showed us. But wait, there's more. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to begin... This understanding, and you'll recognize singleness is, is represented in some of this text as well. That God's plan for our lives. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a jacked up, screwed up place. Think Las Vegas on steroids. This is what was happening in Ephesus. It was the, uh, this cultural center of so many things, but uh, the Apostle Paul was trying to write to these people who wanted to follow Jesus faithfully, but came to following Jesus like all of us do with a preconceived cultural formation. And that's why the formation of Jesus also requires us to be deformed in the ways of the world. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Brothers above all else, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your bodies, your whole being, spirit, soul, body. It's not separated, it's all integrated. He says, take your whole being and present it as worship to the Lord. And do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of culture, to the systems of the world, to the sensibilities and mindsets and understanding that the culture has told you what is important and what is most prominent. Don't be conformed to that any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind maps, by the renewing of what you think, by your mindset. Because, say it with me, church, your mindset. Very good. I'm so proud of you. It matters. And Paul was writing to a church whose cultural sensibilities, they were trying to follow Jesus, but they were still doing it according to the patterns of their world, and he was trying to subvert that way of thinking to point them to a more correct whole union with God, helping them reclaim the picture that points to the right thing. And he says this in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 17. He says, don't act thoughtlessly. In other words, don't just mindlessly go along with what culture tells you is the right way to do family, the right way to do church, the right way to do life, the right way to do finances. Don't act thoughtlessly. What is he saying? Be more thoughtful. Be aware of the mindset that you carry. But understand instead what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Do you want to know what don't be drunk means in the Greek? Don't get drunk. (laughs) Yeah, but I can't have a good time if I'm not a little bit buzzed, Pastor. Well, you need to learn how to have a better time. He didn't say don't drink alcohol. He said don't get drunk. The problem is when we take the good things that God gives us as a gift to be enjoyed and we abuse them and overuse them and misuse them in ways that they weren't meant to be used. You could take it for alcohol. You could take it for food. You could take it for relationships. You could take it for money. You could take everything is a gift from God and it must be stewarded in the way that honors God. Some of you, your minds are going. I hope you're taking notes or you're planning to go back and listen again says, don't be drunk with wine, but instead, oh, there's an option. Here's the option. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your heart, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where most of us stop when it comes to the Christian life. 
He's giving you some things to do that will bring about a flourishing and, a, and, and live and allow the example of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully grow in your life. He's trying to tell you some things of what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. And some of you are like, but I don't like to sing. I don't like to worship. Can I just tell you right now, if you have a problem expressing your affection to God, you will not experience the flourishing life of God. Why, pastor? How can you say that? Because you cannot experience a flourishing relationship with your spouse if you never express your affection. The moment you stop expressing affection for the ones that you love, you begin to die on the vine. If you want to revive your relationship, you must begin to re-express your affection yet again. I just gave some of you the tool to which to reawaken something in your marriage that you haven't experienced in a really long time. The key is to start giving affection, pouring out affection, change the way you talk to and about each other. And express your love in ways that you thought you didn't need to express it anymore. Oh, Bubba, you do. You better go back, buy some flowers, write her a note, lose some weight, put on a clean shirt. Come on. Read the Song of Songs to her. It's it's all good. But when you stop expressing your affection, that life that was blossoming begins to shrivel and die. You cannot thrive in a relationship with God where there is no affection towards God. Singing, making music in our hearts to the Lord. All of these things. He's given us these things. But then there's one more, one more sentence. And it happens because uh, our, our, most of our American translations break up something that in the original wasn't broken up. Because verse 21 says, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's giving us an understanding of what a healthy relationship with God and the church and marriage would even look like. And he's talking about singing and affection and our hearts and giving thanks and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he gives some examples on how that should look and could look for wives. Then gives some examples of what that could be and look like for men. And then he concludes and wraps up all of this stuff with this bookend statement in verse 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. This word joined is the Greek word or Hebrew word debak, which means to pursue with passion, to pursue with a fierceness. That word united has an, a connotation of fleshly union. To pursue each other with passion. A healthy marriage requires that you pursue each other with some passion. In fact, uh, this is why we, we talk about a healthy marriage. This word joined to one another, this word debak, this, this passionate pursuit. Uh, why is Jesus telling us to do this? Because that which you get affection from and give affection to grows within you. If you want your affection to grow in your relationship, the more you give that affection, the more you receive that affection, the more your affection for one another grows. There's a chemical in your brain that is released in the moment of climax in intimacy that is called vasopressin. Vasopressin is a chemical in your brain that is released that in street terms is called a bonding chemical. It's telling your brain, this is a person to be bonded to for life. This is the person that you go to for satisfaction and joy. This is the person that you have, which is why having multiple partners short circuits your brain. So God's not trying to be a killjoy. He's just trying to tell you the proper way in which to use the gift that he's given to you. So the more you go To the wife of your youth, the more you find delight in the man who stole your heart, the more you go to that well, the more you drink from that well, you are rewiring your brain to be joined together and united for life. God's pretty smart, isn't he? Science proves what the Bible has already told us yet. Again, he says they'll be joined together and united in one. This is a great mystery, but is an illustration of the way Christ And the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And a wife must respect her husband. 
And then he goes on, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord for this is right thing to do. Honor your father and mother for this is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well with you and you will live a long life on the earth. Some of you are like, this is the verse we're memorizing as a family this year. This one right here. All the kids are gonna memorize this verse. Right, we're gonna all memorize it. If you want it to go well with you, And here's the next part. Fathers, don't provoke. Another translation says, exasperate your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. Paul is trying to tell us how to have healthy families because God still blesses children and generations through healthy families. All of this text that I just read, you will see the proper purpose for marriage represented. The context for sexual expression, a directive towards procreation and child rearing in the ways of God, A marriage as the focus of companionship where you go and find satisfaction in one another and as a spiritual metaphor. He's not talking about just marriage. He's trying to say that it is the picture of Christ and the church and the covenant act of love that Jesus does for the church is the covenant act of love that marriage does within itself. All of these purposes are found in this text but I want to help you have a healthy marriage in the ways of God, not in the ways of our culture and our world. So let me unpack a couple things. Let's talk about this S word, shall we? Let's talk about submit. I will say right now, great damage has done to many good relationships because of a misunderstanding of this word submit, especially in super conservative fundamentalist Bible belt places. I don't know, kind of like Southeast Kansas. (laughs) I'll say up front, nowhere in scripture does God command women to obey their husbands. That was a good place for all the bold women to say amen, but y'all are all scared. (laughs) But you have an advocate standing behind a, a podium with a microphone, ladies. You can say amen today. Men, you can say, oh my. (laughs) (laughs) Submitting to each other as submitting to the Lord. The primary command in this passage is not to submit to someone with power on earth, but to submit to someone who has supreme sovereign power in heaven. Because he says, submit to one another. And then he bookends the introduction with, again, submitting to one another. You honor each other. You love each other. You give some respect. You give some love. He's trying to tell them how to operate in a culture that would not have understood the power dynamic. What he's trying to communicate is it doesn't matter if you submit to someone that you see here or not. You need to understand that someone else has more power than what you have. So how you correlate and do this with one another, it matters a great deal. He was beginning to upend yet again the power differential even in the context of union and marriage in their day and age. The fact that Paul addresses women before he addresses men would have been wild. The fact that he addresses children before he addresses the parents is crazy. And the fact that he would go on to address slaves over masters would have been mind-boggling and people would have been ready to throw some stones somewhere. He was upending something that culturally had been entrenched in their mind but wasn't biblical or Christ-centered in any way. See, they were living under and in their households according to Greek and Roman household codes not necessarily according to the design of God. 
Men had all the power. They were the ones that you talked to. They were the ones that dealt with the money. They were the ones that made all the decisions. They were the ones who were in charge of absolutely everything. Wives were at home just making home, having more children. They had slaves all around. Children had no rights, no thing. And so here you are, people who have always been pushed to the outside. The, the congregation in Ephesus would have been full of men, front and center. And they're reading this letter, submit to one another. And all the men were like, yeah, amen. And then he would say, wives. And all of a sudden, the men would go real quiet. How in the world is he even talking to a woman in public? And the wives' ears would have picked up, yeah, we're here, we're listening. What do you want, what do you want to say to us? And then he would address men. And then he would say, children. All of the kids were like, yeah, we're here. We matter. You can see us. We're not invisible. You know, you know about us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then slaves. And then on the outside were all these slaves, like not even welcome into the main congregation. And they would be like, did, did he say, did he, is he talking to us? As working class, as people who don't have influence and work for somebody else, is, is he talking to us? He's upending these cultural understanding. Paul was telling them how to cooperate and love one another in a God-honoring way. And it was wild, it was uncommon, and it was some instructions that upset the apple cart of their cultural sensibilities. See, because the pervasive thought in Greek and Roman households was simply this, and forgive it for being a little bit graphic, but this is one Greek's author at that time, the contemporaries of Aristotle and others, this is what they said, men needed wives for childbearing, prostitutes for pleasure, and slaves for daily use. This was their mindset and understanding. And Paul was addressing it and helping them think more Christ-centered. The King Jesus gospel approaches it from a different lens. And the Christians came along encountering that understanding with equality. Because in Christ there's no slave or free, male or female, Gentile or Jew child or parent it is we all can come and receive of the grace of God be discipled by God and grow in the ways of God it was all in together there was this understanding of equality that was being established and recognizing in that moment see because when God created men and women in Genesis chapter 2 he created men and women in his own likeness Men and women were created to equally bear the image of God. Men and women were created to be equal, but were of a different kind. They were the same, but they had some variations. They were designed in a way to create partnership and co-rulership, having dominion over all of the earth, being fruitful, multiply, and cultivating the world to flourish the way God intended it to flourish. It wasn't men first and then women. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's arguments that were um, not only prevalent in our church culture uh, in this day and age, but that were prevalent back in that day in Ephesus, which is why Paul writes to Timothy, and he's addressing some arguments. We're like, hey, wasn't, wasn't man made before woman? That's why it should be this. There was a lot of false theology and false teaching about things. If we're going to go on who was created first, and that's why men have all the power and women don't because they were created second, then I would counter that argument with saying dogs were created before men. Animals were created in the order of creation before men, and women were created in the order of creation. So let's not talk about who arrived first as to what was there. There was a man. He was there by himself. Adam was there, but he was the one who couldn't handle it on his own. So somebody else with some strength needed to show up to help him in this life. In Genesis 2, men and women were created as equal partners, equal in God's image, but distinct in their uniqueness and gender and in their gifting. According to Genesis 3, that's where male chauvinism was the result of sin and the fall. Male supremacy and domination is the result of sin in our world, not God's intention and design. In Genesis 3, God begins to lament the result of sin that they would begin to experience. And part of the result was this domination that would occur where men would rule over their wives and wives would long and desire for their husbands. 
the desire would go ignored because they get distracted by the directives of their gifting. We have this word that's floating around called headship. And I believe in headship so long as we define headship correctly. Headship has to do with accountable stewardship and protection, not power, control, and dominance or final say. Headship is God's redemptive plan at work for me to serve and steward the family, not rule, be a taskmaster, or act with supremacy or dominance as a posture of power. God intended men to be fully created in his image. He created men and women to be partners bringing equal value and unique gifts and special dynamics to the party of the family. When husbands and men serve and steward in God-honoring ways, women feel secure and can walk with a submitted heart. God's glory can equally be seen through the female as it can the male. Eve has the desire, but Adam was given a directive. Sin causes Eve to desire her husband, and sin caused Adam to be distracted by his directive. I believe roles within the family have less to do with gender and more to do with gifting. And this is what scripture is teaching us. I think women tend to be suited and gifted to turn a house into a welcoming home of affirmation. While men tend to be best suited to turn a home into a safe haven flowing with love that casts out all fear of those who dwell there. And those things have nothing to do with domestic responsibilities nor gender stereotypes. Domestic responsibilities, cleaning, taking out the trash, doing the laundry. You know who should do those? Those who have the ability and the availability and the willingness to serve each other. That's who does those things not whoever wears a skirt and whoever wears pants. It's about gifting, not gender. The way God created men and women, it is unique, it is special, it is wonderful, but we don't need to do the roles in our family based on gender stereotypes in our world. You've heard me tell you how inept I am with tools. My wife is incredibly logical and mechanical in her approach to life. She is gifted in that. I am not. I deal with words, feelings, emotions, psyches, and uh, a poet, poetic creativity. That's my lane. I'm more comfortable in skinny jeans than greased up jeans. It's just who I am. I don't need to upend some gender stereotype. No, no, I just need to recognize how has God gifted me? And how do I bring all of my gifting to the family that he's given me? You want to have a healthy marriage and a healthy family? Recognize the gifting and the grace that God has given you in each other and leverage it to create a home that honors God. Leverage it to create a home that brings life Men need respect. That's what he says in verse 33. Wives, give your husband respect. It's a gift that a woman can give. Jesus is our model as prophet, priest, and king. And men, our standard for what does it look like to serve and love is that of Jesus Christ. As prophet, he would hear God's word and declare it to his family. As priest, he would take the needs and the concerns of his family before God in prayer. And as king, he would only exert his authority, not for dominance or selfishness, but to protect from outside advancement. That's what a good king would do. To protect. Not to protect his rights and his own but to lay his life down in a way to protect what is best and brought for the family. Women need security. It's a gift that men give to women, security. Women, the Holy Spirit is your model in this. You know that the only time the word helper is ever used really again 
in Scripture as it is used in Genesis. It's used in reference to God and in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the Hebrew word ezer, only used to talk about God. The dignity and the identity to which God has created the female and the wife is astounding through Scripture. And like the Holy Spirit, women are uniquely gifted and anointed and created in the image of God to bring counsel and comfort and guide and convince and correct when necessary. It's unique. Eve needed security, and this was Adam's greatest sin. He was passive and distracted. Adam was passive and distracted in the garden. And it's time for men to stop trying to hold on to some pseudo form of power based on some false title and biblical understanding that is short-sighted. And it's time that we stand and we serve and we love and we adore and we protect and we take the place of honoring and loving our wives. My wife is strong and capable, smart, organized, and deeply caring for others. But often she can become crippled by the complexity she feels in certain decisions. Especially ones she feels are costly or risky. I don't ostracize her or tell her she doesn't have a role in making decisions. That would be an incorrect use of my role. But rather... I come alongside her and she comes alongside me and she longs for me to lead and provide a sense of covering and security for her that aids her in the process of making a decision so that we can make this together and move forward. It's not a moment of weakness per se because it's more because she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh and has a gift that I need and I have a gift that she needs. God took Eve out of the side of man because they were meant to stand side by side, co-partners ruling and reigning in the life together in partnership. Child, men need respect, women need security, and children need training. They need teaching. They need discipline. They need discipleship. They need affection. They need attention. They need boundaries. And a healthy home recognizes the need of each and the gift that each brings. And God is still blessing children when homes are being healthy. Friends, the spirit of a home matters more than the structure of a home. And this is really good news. Because if you've come from a broken home, the spirit in your home can be different than broken. This is good news because if you are a single solo parent, you're not missing anything because the Spirit will supply all that you need so that you can parent and lead and bring your children to Jesus too. And this is good news for those of us who have different gifts and personalities and don't fit into other stereotypes because God can fill us with his spirit to live and do. And that's why we sing songs. This is why we worship. This is why we live with thanksgiving. And this is why we choose to walk in submission one to another because it's that space where the spirit is filled and flowing. And that's what we need in our homes. And it's God that blesses through those healthy, a healthy church is how God blesses families. Not just through a healthy home, healthy marriages, but through a healthy church. And this is what we endeavor to be. To recognize that men and women have unique giftings that influence and impact the family of God in a way that bring about discipleship, that bring about teaching, that bring about molding and moving us into the direction that God has called for us to do and be. God wants to bless you and bless your family and bless your children and bless your marriage. And God will bless that which we surrender and submit to him. Would you stand? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. Here in a minute, once we dismiss, we'll have a prayer team. They're going to be available to pray with you. 
to lay hands on you, to bless you, to speak life over you. If you're struggling or feel alone or feel like you need to respond in some practical way to this message, they're, they're here to help and to do that. But all of us can respond in some way today to the nudging of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to speak to us in some way, to show us something. Just simply ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? God, I thank you for the family of God. The place where we come and hear from mothers and fathers who train us, equip us, and show us the way to follow Jesus. Show us the way to move in your direction. Show us the way for mothers and fathers who bring us to Jesus. Jesus, we need you. We long for you. We want to see your kingdom come, and we want to do our part and participate in your mission. For some, that means that we're cultivating a healthy family and a healthy marriage. For some, as singles, that means that we're participating and creating a healthy flourishing of submitting to the Lord and finding our soul sufficiency and satisfaction in, in you as we too participate in your family. God, I pray for those who feel broken and hurt, those who have been done damage because of incorrect use or those that have just come from a broken home. God, would you heal those wounds, heal those places, heal the things that only you can heal, God. Lord, we thank you for the joy of being in your presence and with your people today. And now, Lord, I, I find it my joy to pronounce blessing on those in the room and watching online. Lord, I pray that you would bless them and keep them. Lord, that you would make your face shine on them and be gracious to them. Would you lift your countenance towards them, God, and give them peace. Pray everywhere they go this week, God, they would be reminded that they are radically loved by Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who lives within us always. And the people of God said, amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If, if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.